As we jump into this, uh, this series, uh, part two, called The Crown. So listen, if you have a Bible, you can turn it on, open it up. We're in 1 Samuel, and, and what we're doing is we're preaching through this entire book. We're going to probably break it up into two or three parts. But it's our commitment as Rockbridge, but really as Christ followers, to be submitted to the Word of God. So I, I'm not picking the topics. I'm like, hey, if it's verse 13 where we left off, that's where we're joining the Word of God and we're asking the Spirit of God to speak to us, believing that His Word to us in the 66 inspired books of the Old and New Testament, that Word is sufficient, that Word is authoritative, and when we submit to it, we'll walk out of here different than when we came in. So let's be expectant, let's be hopeful. So last week, as we jumped into this, we, we kind of introduced it with this little formula or equation that all of us kind of have a blank, right? And, and in that blank is like, hey, if I just had this, more of this, less of this, I, I would have more happiness, a stronger or more secure identity and more security. And, and then we enlist God to sort of help us add this, uh, fill in this blank for us, right? And so the whole message of the first half of, second, of 1 Samuel, excuse me, is Israel, the people of God, are saying, God, give us a king, an earthly, political, military king, like all of our neighbors. We haven't gotten there yet, but that's the premise of the book. And, and then we'll have this stuff. And then we looked at a girl, a, 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 a baron, could not have a kid lady, who was, she was, her name was Hannah. She was like, God, give me a son, and then I'll have this stuff. And then she, lo and behold, gives the son back to God, which was like the, the swerve of the whole story. But this sets up what's going on in the entire book of 1 Samuel, but it's also going on in your life and my life, because you've got blanks you want to fill in too, right? You've got blanks you would like God to fill in, and, and we kind of wrestled with that tension last week. So this week, as we get into chapter 2, we're going to talk about this will be the least popular sermon that I've ever preached in the history of Rockbridge Community Church. There is no way, I mean, I have never, in tw I've had people say, Matt, when are you going to preach about the second coming? Matt, I want you to preach about this. Matt, I want you to preach about this. In 21 years, no one has said, hey, Matt, would you preach about this? Sin. Because it's just not popular, right? And, and listen, I mean, you know, yeah, I'm a Christ follower. I know some of you are not yet, and we're praying that you become one, and, but we're so glad that you're here. But even if you're like, even if that word, you know, brings up bad memories of church hurt or, or fundamental legalism, or, you know, you're like, hey, I'm not even sure what sin is. All of us have areas or things that we would just say, that's just wrong. Now, your list may be shorter than some others, but we've all got that list. And, and here's the challenge that I, that I see in myself. And yeah, I'm the full-time you know, Christian with a microphone on his face. Here's the challenge I see in society, but certainly in me and, and in most of us. Everybody has a tendency. Sometimes it even evolves into a strategy to minimize their personal sin. Everybody, and, and here's what we say, right? Oh, nobody's perfect. God understands. We, or, or, or hey, hey, God will just forgive me. Or nobody got hurt, nobody got killed, there's nothing really wrong with it. Or, hey, I know God wants me to be happy. Well, doing this makes me happy, right? I mean, so, so all of us have a way where we tend to, if we're not careful, to minimize sin. Sometimes it's a strategy. Sometimes if somebody is about to call you out on something, you get angry, you get defensive, you begin to point the finger, you begin to blame. Everybody has this tendency to one degree or another. And so we've got that going on inside of us. 
And then we live in a culture that no longer wants to say anything is for sure right or anything is for sure wrong. And, and so your internal battle coupled with the societal battle, let me, let me show you. I, I don't know if you remember this, this, this guy, Hannibal Lecter, if you saw the movie Silent Slams. I'm not recommending you go see it, okay? You might have nightmares. But he said something that is so insightful in the movie. Okay, so Officer Starling, she goes in to interview him. He's a serial killer. She goes in to interview him, and she's trying to figure him out. Like, where did it go wrong? Maybe he didn't have a good home life. Maybe he didn't get enough education. And he looks at her, and he says, nothing happened to me, Officer Starling. I happened. You can't reduce me to a set of influences. He says, you've given up good and evil for behaviorism. Look at me. Can you stand to say that I'm just evil? And that is a more biblical description of the problem that I have and you have and the world has than anything you'll read in any psychological magazine and certainly anything you're going to get on the news. There is an evil problem. So even a, like a very politically liberal professor said this. A gulf has opened in our culture between the visibility of evil and the intellectual resources for coping with it. We have jettisoned the idea of cosmic or supernatural or transcendent evil. We just don't believe in it. In fact, we don't like to use the word evil because it implies moral absolutes and value judgments. So instead, what do we use? Medical terms. Medical conditions. We talk about dysfunction. We talk about pathology. We don't even use moral terminology. Why? Because we all have a tendency to minimize sin. Because if we have to talk about sin, then we have to look at ourselves in the mirror, just like we looked at the monster Hannibal Lecter, and say, you know what, there's some evil in me. I told you it wasn't going to be a popular message. Well, when you jump in to 1 Samuel and you get to verse 12, we left off at verse 11 last week, here's just sort of how the Bible does it. Eli's sons were wicked men. They did not respect the Lord. In fact, the literal translation had that no regard for the Lord. Now, I've got two sons, and, and you, know what, you know what parents want to do? Well, they got in with the wrong crowd. No, they're just evil, you know, <laughs> right? I, I, I mean, we want, we, even in our kids, right? Oh, my kid couldn't. No, your kid has evil in him. I'm pretty sure they do. And, and so the Bible just comes right out and said, <coughs> excuse me, these two kiddos, these, well, they're grown men, they're evil. And, and, and then let's look at what they were doing. They're the priests or some of the priests serving the Lord. So it says this, they had no regard for the Lord or the priest's share of the sacrifices from the people. When anyone offered a sacrifice, and we're dealing in Deuteronomy and Leviticus right now uh, to get these instructions, the priest servant would come in with the three-pronged meat fork while the meat was boiling and plunge it into the container, the kettle, the cauldron, or the cooking pot. The priest would claim for himself whatever the meat fork brought up. This is the way they treated all the Israelites who came there to Shiloh to offer their sacrifices for their sins. Even before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the one who was sacrificing, give the priest some meat to roast because he won't accept boiled meat from you, only raw. If that person said to him, the fat must be burned first, then you must take whatever you want for yourself. And the servant would reply, if that person said to him, 
The fat must be burned first. Then you can take whatever you want for yourself. The servant would say, no, I insist that you hand it over right now. If you don't, I'll take it by force. So the servant's sin was very severe in the presence of the Lord. And we're sitting here like, what's their sin? What's the big deal? Because it doesn't sound like, I mean, this sounds like they got something out of order or what was going on. Because the men treated the Lord's offering with contempt. So let me just boil it down this way. They had two sins. They were taking more than the priestly share of the offering. So God had allotted. The priests did not, they did not work the field. They did not raise animals. They did not raise crops. They were dependent on the people to bring the offerings. And they would have a portion of them that was the priest portion. They were taking more than their fair share. That was sin number one. And sin number two is the Lord had a portion of the offering. It had to do with the fat. And, and they were taking the Lord's portion of the offering. Now, here's where we wrestle with this. This is Old Testament. Uh, a lot of this stuff has been fulfilled in Christ, which we'll get to. But let's just be honest. I'm going to be honest, right? You read something like that, and you're like, what's the big deal? Did they really do anything that bad? I mean, did they, I mean you, know, what, 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 you know, do you eat your salad before your meal or after your meal? Big deal, right? I mean, so what, 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 are, what are we supposed to get from that? Because it's certainly, we don't do that. We don't have sacrifices. I mean, We'll understand why in a few moments, but what, what's the big deal? Well, and, and the way we have to see this sin or any sin that you and I tend to minimize, which is our tendency and our, and our flesh and our ego and our pride, we, the way we have to see any sin is this. Before we see sin as behavioral, we must see it primarily as relational, okay? So when it comes to behavior, it's, we can always, almost always justify our behavior. We've been doing it since we were kids with our brothers and sisters. Well, he started it, right? He hit me first. I mean, there's always a justification. Well, the reason I got so angry and cussed this person out was because of what they did, you know, and all, you know, all that stuff, right? So we can always justify our behavior, but what we're seeing in the text is sin is primarily relational. They had no regard for the Lord and his offering. <clears throat> they had no regard for what God said was his sin. So, so here's a way to think about it as we tiptoe into this, okay? If someone you love has an allergy to something you love, so you, me and peanut butter pie, right? Filling station right down the road from here. Praise the Lord, right? right? If my boys had a peanut allergy, would I continue to have peanut or peanut butter or peanut butter pie in my house? No, because it's endangering to their presence because I love my boys more than I love peanut butter pie. So when God says that's offensive to me, I don't get to just debate whether, oh, I don't see anything right or wrong with it. God says it's offensive to him. And he wants a relationship with us. If I have, I can't have a relationship with someone with a peanut allergy if I'm taking peanuts to them. I can't have a relationship with a holy God if I'm debating sin and minimizing sin. So it's primarily relational. You can see this in three ways, okay? Between us and God. God wants a relationship with us. It all started with a relationship, right? God's in a relationship with himself inside the Holy Trinity. God creates Adam and Eve and walks with him in the garden. 
They sin and there's estrangement. But here's the relationship. It's always been about the presence of God, the presence of God in the garden. And how do we get back to God with us, God for us? What's Jesus' is one of Jesus' names we talk about at Christmas? Emmanuel, which means God with us. It's always been about the presence, right? And, and it's, so it's always between God and us, always been about the presence. And then who gets to define the relationship? Does the most powerful being in the universe, all wise, all loving, all knowing, infinite in majesty, does he get to define the relationship or does Matt? Well, God does. He's the most powerful. He's all loving, right? To relate to God, I have to orient to God versus God orienting to me. So it's about relationship and how do we relate to a holy God? So, so let me give us a definition of sin, okay? And, 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 you know, everybody, all of us have sins that, man, that's just awful. And then all of us have sins like, eh, right? We've all got it. But when you put sin in a category, not of behavior, but of a relational strife, a relational rift that opens up between me and you and God, <coughs> this definition probably works best. Anything offensive, hurtful, and defiling to the gloriously holy presence of God, and that simultaneously or subsequently negatively affects us and often others more than we think or realize. So anything that God deems offensive, hurtful, defiling, anything that would come into his presence, and he's omnipresent, right, that would be defiling. And so that definition of sin has to hit our soul. So it has to hit our soul. So we're not, we're not even thinking about, hey, how, you know, how far is too far? How close can I get to the edge without it being wrong? You know, how, how, far, you know, how much is too much? Is there anything really wrong that they ate the fat of a dead animal? Well, if it's offensive to God... And absolutely, right? So, what happens next in Samuel is we get a little contrast. So, we've got these evil, wicked guys because of what they're doing in the Lord's presence. And then the author of Samuel, genius under the Holy Spirit, pivots and goes to the boy Samuel. And he wants us to see a contrast emerging. Samuel served in the Lord's presence. It's all about presence, being in the Lord's presence. This mere boy was dressed in the linen ephod, which is a priestly garment because he's going to become one of the priests, right, as he matures. Each year his mother made him a little robe and took it to him when she went with her husband to offer the annual sacrifice. Because remember, Hannah gave her son up, gave him to the temple, gave him to the Lord. Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife. May the Lord give you children by this woman in place of the one she has given to the Lord. And they would go home. And the Lord paid attention to Hannah's need, and she conceived, gave birth to three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the wicked sons of Eli contrasted with Samuel. The boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord, grew up knowing how to honor and submit and enjoy <coughs> the presence of the Lord. <coughs> so we have... Israel in a, in, a, in a spiritual funk, yet God is still moving. 
God is still working. God is raising up someone who's going to write the next chapter of redemptive history. And so in the middle of this sin, in the middle of this nasty, in the middle of this wicked, in the middle of this evil, we get this from a little boy, which gives us a little bit of hope. When we look in the mirror and see evil in us, when we look out the window and see what in the world is happening to our country, we get a little bit of hope because here's what we learn. Sin, no matter how pervasive, never, ever nullifies, stops, or prevents God from being God in all of his glorious attributes. And listen, there's some of you here today, and if we got real, and maybe not me and you get real, but you and the Holy Spirit get real right now, you are stuck in sin. You are excusing sin. And you're wondering, Matt, are you going to throw this hellfire and brimstone message at me? I am absolutely not going to do that. Because even where you sit in your sin battle, God is still working and hasn't given up on you. And he hasn't given up on the world. Do you know... People talk about, what's our country coming to? Oh, our country. What's our country coming to? Do you know before we were even in a country, in about the 1740s, before the Great Awakening, one of the great revivals in America, do you know what they were writing in newspapers and articles about the church? They were writing the autopsy. The church is dead. Christianity in America is gone. That's like 1740. The next year, you know what happened? The Great Awakening. Never, ever underestimate the power of God and people of God never give up on the hope that comes from our God so we can't overlook the small the quiet even the unnoticed work of the Lord see I, I, one of the things that's happened to Christianity and Christians is we, we only think God's working if this big stuff happens right this ooh, I got the feeling oh worship was just amazing God's always working. God's all. In, in fact, I would submit it's usually in the quiet, still voice, the small, unnoticed, the person who gets up every day and just has a little quiet time with the Lord. The small acts of obedience, the small acts of faithfulness, of nudge, of, of conviction that moves someone to repentance, that's where the Lord's working. And, and, and we, all, we all think it's got to, y'all remember the, the, the New Year's, you Georgia Bulldog fans, you remember like New Year's Eve when Georgia beat Ohio State and they missed a field goal right as the clock stuck midnight? Woo, God was in that, right? <laughs> Praise the Lord, football season's about back, isn't it, right? <laughs> but we think, man, that's how God works. It's got to be like that. And God's like, shh. There's a small little boy working in mundane tasks in the temple and everybody's overlooking him but something big's coming God's never ever not working and that's true of everybody in the sound of my voice and it's powerful to live there don't give up hope on America don't give up hope on the church 
Don't give up hope on revival. Don't give up hope on the person you've been praying for for 15 years to come to Christ. Don't give up hope on the person you have invited to join you to ch with church for 21 years. Don't give up hope that these empty chairs and all of six of our venues represent someone who can come to Christ through a relationship that you establish with them and that you pray for them. Don't give up hope when you look in the mirror and think, my God, what have I done? God is working. Now, don't underestimate or hijack the vision God has for our lives. See, a lot of us, when we think God's working, we think, oh, here's what it means. I'm going to show you two visions that we can have for our lives. Vision A is we pursue our hopes and dreams. We pursue the American dream of material prosperity and long life. And God, if we believe in him, is here to help. And that's why a lot of people come to church. Right? That's what a lot of people think about God. God, here's my blank. Fill in my blank. Right? That's their vision for their lives. Here it is. God, fill in my blank. American dream. Fill in my blank. Health and wealth and prosperity. Fill in the blank, God. That's what, you, that's what you're supposed to do. There's another vision that emerges in Scripture. It's the vision this church is trying to pursue with greater faithfulness than ever after 21 years. It's this vision. My sin is my greatest problem my challenge. There's a little bit of Hannibal Lecter in me. I need help from the inside out because I can't do it. I need a savior and a better king than myself and what the world offers. I need Jesus. Amen. And I want to be a student of Jesus, not a student of the world, not a student of the flesh, not a student of money. I want to be a student of Jesus. So vision A, vision B, which do you gravitate toward? See, a lot of people want to go to church, and this is what they want. They want a vision A church. Keep me comfortable, keep me happy, give me something that will help me in my life so I can have more money and have a little more happiness. I'll give you the vision for Rockbridge. We want to look more like Jesus. Amen. And we want more people to find Jesus. Period. That's it. End of story. That's the only thing I think God will bless. Right? So don't hijack God's vision because he knows best for our lives. Story pivots back to Eli and the sons. Eli was very old. He heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel and how they were sleeping with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. So they're not just messing up the altar. They're sleeping with the temple virgins. That's another layer, isn't it? Wicked sin. So he says to his sons, why are you doing these things? I've heard about your evil actions from all these people. No, my son. Sons, the news I hear the Lord's people spreading is not good. If one person sins against the other, who can intercede for him? But if a person sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? And that's the big question. Who can, and if we're not good enough. And Eli said, hey, if you sin against God, who's going to help? That points us this side of Easter to Jesus. But it's a real problem. But they would not listen to their father. And here's one of those verses that every one of us get mad at God for. Since the Lord intended to kill them. What? By contrast, here it is again, flips. The boy Samuel grew in stature and in favor with the Lord and with people. Why does God intend to kill them? Their heart had grown so hard. So it's a reminder. We have to take sin, any and all sin, seriously. All sin costs Jesus his life. All sin robs us of the joy of the Lord's presence. All sin does. 
We have to take any sin and all sin seriously. Not just the four sins you were raised to hate. Not just homosexual sexual sin, but heterosexual sexual sin. Right? Not just people who are addicted to chemicals, but people who also are gluttons with food. And we could go on and on and on till till we're all looking at Hannibal in the mirror. We have to take sin seriously. But we begin to see some things emerge in the battle against sin. The first thing is we need to warn ourselves against a hard heart. That's what happened to Eli's sons. God will repeatedly warn, but when the heart is exposed to the truth but under-responds, the heart gets callous and the heart gets hard. And so when God looks at these two sons, he's like, look, if I leave them in their role as priest, more people will be led astray, more people will be harmed than if I just take them out. Now, we can fault God for that, but then we thank police officers when they take out a threat, like in a school or in a shooting, or we thank our military when they take out a terrorist threat. Should we not trust the judgment of an all-wise, infinite, loving, majestic, heavenly Father who says, I can't let that sin continue or it will hurt more people. So don't get mad at God and say, oh, that's Old Testament. Love is love in the New Testament. No, sin is still sin. And Hannibal's still alive in some of us and all of us to some extent. So we have to warn ourselves against a hard heart. We also see that a father is willing to give a rebuke. I want to ask everyone a question. When someone, would you, would you join a church if the church said, hey, we want to help you fight your sin? You shouldn't join a church that doesn't want to help you fight your sin. Would you join a small group where part of the small group discussion is, hey, what sin are you fighting and how can we help you? Or do you want to join a small group and say, hey, I'm good. Let's talk about news, weather, and sports. See, my experience, 21 years, when you start to talking about people's sins in a, in a rebuke fashion, most people leave the church and they blame the church and they go to another church and say, hey, I left because they get, you know, this, that, this. No, they left because someone called them on their sin. We're called to help each other fight our sins in love and in grace. But yes, I need help fighting my sins. And, and so how do you respond to a rebuke? How do you respond when someone says, hey, I just need to talk to you about this because I, I don't think this is right. Or, or, or this, I, think, I think you're struggling and I think we need to help you. These sons didn't respond. God tried. He gave them all the grace in the world, all the mercy in the world, but they didn't respond. And then I think there's a question and a call to fight because I'll get this question. I want to preempt it. I'll get this question. People will email me and it's a great question. It's like, Matt, I mean, are we supposed to be perfect? And Matt, we still sin. And what do we do about when we're repeat sinners? And we're all repeat sinners. And the, and the question is not so much, will you sin or will I sin? It's, the question is, will we fight our sin or will, be at, will we be at peace with something that put Jesus on the cross? So look at this incredible passage from 1 John. We have fellowship with him because it's about relationship, right? That's God. And yet we walk in darkness... And we are lying and not practicing the truth. So he's saying you cannot make peace with your sin if you are in fellowship with God. 
If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, that sacrifice, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, if we agree with God about our sins, that it is a big deal, that no, God doesn't just forgive us. God had to put his son on the cross to forgive us. If we agree with God, then yes, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So yeah, we fight sin, even though we still sin. But we fight from a place of victory, not defeat. A place of acceptance in the family of God, not condemnation outside of the family of God. So into this dynamic, we go back to Samuel and God sends a man of God. He comes to Eli and says, this is what the Lord says. Didn't I reveal myself to your forefather's family when they were in Egypt and belonged to Pharaoh's palace? He's talking about Moses and Aaron. Out of all the tribes of Israel, I chose your house to be my priest, to offer sacrifices on my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod, and in my presence. And I also gave your forefather's family all the Israelite food offerings. Why then do you all despise my sacrifices and offerings that I require at the place of worship? You have honored your sons more than me by making yourself fat. So Eli had put on a few pounds, and he'd put on a few pounds eating the unauthorized portion of the sacrifices that his sons were officiates over. The apple didn't fall too far from the tree. With the best part of all the offerings of my people, therefore, this is the declaration of the Lord, the God of Israel. I did say that your family and your forefather's family would walk before me forever, but now this is the Lord's declaration, no longer. And here's a promise to build your life upon. Here's a promise to build a church upon. Those who honor me, I will honor, but those who despise me will be disgraced. And he issues judgment. He brings a warning, and he brings judgment. And so... One of the things God does is he sends a merciful invasion of the word of God. He sends a merciful invasion of the word of God to his people to help us fight our sin versus make peace of our sin. This is why, people of God, this is why, listen, this is why, as, our, as a church, I will probably preach more books of the Bible than I've ever done before because we are such a post-truth society. We are going to actually call ourselves back and put ourselves more fully under the Word of God week in and week out. That's why it's dangerous to miss church because what if you miss the Word of God God had for you that week? God sends the Word. Oh, God's not speaking. God's not speaking. Never say God's not speaking with the Bible closed and yourself not under the teaching of the Word of God. And then he goes on and he continues with the judgment and he says, look, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your forefather's family so that none in your family will reach old age. You will see distress in the place of worship in spite of all that is good in Israel and no one in your family will ever again reach old age. Any man from your family I do not cut off from my altar will bring grief and sadness to you. All of your descendants will die violently. This will be the sign that will come to you concerning your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Both of them will die on the same day. 
Now that sounds again, oh, it's so harsh. Oh, that's so Old Testament. Oh, the God of the Old Testament is, is just a different God. Oh, God, why is God so angry? Why is God so upset? Because sin hurts his people. Because sin hurts his name. And listen to me, it doesn't matter what society does to sin. They can dumb it down. They can change the definition. Sin always brings death. Look, all your descendants will die violently. Now, on the other side of Easter, you know who died violently? Jesus. So this curse doesn't have to fall on me or you. Amen. This curse doesn't have to fall on the people these empty chairs represent because maybe they're lost and we need to build a relationship with them instead of giving up on them and bring them to church and bring them to Jesus Christ. Because Jesus died violently. But here's the problem. Listen, listen, listen. Everybody lean in. If you get nothing out of what I say, lean in for this, okay? When we minimize sin, we will, we will infinitely misunderstand Jesus and what his cross means. If we minimize sin, we will miss Jesus or we will redefine Jesus. If you have an insufficient view of sin, you have a cheap view of Jesus. Let me talk about some of the views of Jesus going around our culture. There's Jesus, the life coach. Jesus is going to help me get to college, make the team, make the grade. Jesus is going to help my marriage be better. Yeah, and he may, and he can. He has wisdom in all those areas. Not saying that. But that's an insufficient view of Jesus. There's, there's housekeeper Jesus. God's going to clean up my messes and just forgive him, and he's going to be housekeeper Jesus. Kumbaya, Jesus. Jesus is going to give us, oh, I, I just got a peace. I'm sending good vibes, Jesus. <laughs> Jesus died violently on a cross, not to be your life coach, not to be your housekeeper, not to sing Kumbaya, but to keep you out of hell and bring you into the forever family of God. Period. End of story. Praise the Lord. Amen. The solution to seeing sin clearly and fighting sin victoriously is in Jesus. You will never know the depth of his love until you have somewhat of an understanding of the depth of your sin. You will never know the sufficiency of God's mercy, grace, love, and wisdom until you see the insufficiencies of all the things you're trying to put into that fill-in-the-blank. 1 Samuel chapter 2 ends, and we close with this with another prophetic statement that takes us beyond roughly 1100 B.C. Yeah, it's dealing with that era, but it's going to push us into the New Testament prophetically. Listen to it. You'll, we'll catch it, okay? God says, then I will raise up a faithful priest for myself. Now, certainly he's doing that because we've seen the young boy Samuel. and He will be a faithful priest, but he will not be a perfect priest. Who will be the perfect priest that can offer that one final sacrifice that finally satisfies God and finally wins our redemption and finally sets us free from the, the bondage of sin? Jesus. Right here in the Old Testament. Oh, but the Old Testament God's different than the New Testament God. No, I assure you they are very much the same and they are authoring the same story. And it all points to Jesus. I will establish a lasting dynasty for him. Lasting? A forever kingdom? Who could that be? 
Samuel's going to die. Eli's going to die. Eli's two sons are going to die. Matt's going to die. The Republican Party's going to die. Who could that be? King Jesus. He will do what is in my heart and mind. Lasting dynasty. And he will walk before my anointed one for all time. Anyone, back to, back to Eli, anyone who's left in your family will come and bow down to him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread. He will say, please appoint me to some priestly office so I can have a piece of bread to eat. They will be that desperate. So even in 1 Samuel, when we're dealing with this boy and these two evil sons and their evil father, <coughs> and we're seeing the seriousness of sin, God is showing us that he will provide a sufficient solution to our problem. And Hebrews kind of brings it full circle. He doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day as the high priests do, first for their own sins, then for those of the people. Samuel will have to offer sacrifices for his own sin. Jesus doesn't have to do that. He did this once for all time when he became the sacrifice for us so we can rest in him. So I want you to ask yourself, when you look at yourself in the mirror, and let's just talk about your sin, my sin, the sin maybe you're dealing with right now, you're fighting right now, the temptation that tends to get the best of you. Let's bring it to the table for just a moment, okay? I know it's uncomfortable, but we're going to bring it to the sufficient sacrifice that where he offered himself. We're going to bring it to Jesus, okay? Here's what we got. Look at this. So powerful. We have a perfect once and for all sacrifice made. Jesus on the cross. Jesus for you. Jesus instead of you. And when he did that, let me tell you what he did, okay? First thing he did, it was propitiation. That satisfied the anger of God. God is righteously angry at, the, at, at our sin. He is angry at sin. He hates sin. He has to satisfy that anger. His anger is not unholy or unrighteous like most of Matt Evans' anger and, 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 and frustration. It is perfectly holy. So on the cross, Jesus can stand on the cross and Jesus can and it be my propitiation where God can look at Matt Evans if my faith is in Jesus and say, I'm no longer mad at Matt. And I know everything he's done, everything he will do. I know the Hannibal Lecter in him, but I am no longer mad at Matt. And he can say that of you too. And, and then, and then, and then, redemption occurs where God buys us back. The debt that sin incurred, the redemption of the cross, he's purchasing us. He's buying us back. In fact, because he buys me back, I can no longer call myself my own. Okay? And, and then, on the cross, that sin that I'm looking at, when I see Hannibal in the mirror, that's, he's now my justification, forgiveness of sin, and I get Jesus' righteousness because I can't be good enough. I need someone to be good enough for me. Praise the Lord. That's Jesus. And then the final thing from the cross is I get reconciliation. I get the relationship back with God. And so amazing things happen at the cross. Two things happen when we fully embrace the cross, but we can't get to the cross unless we understand the weight of our sin, okay? There's two satisfactions that occur in salvation, two, okay? God is now satisfied with us in Christ. Apart from Christ, he's mad. Apart from Christ, we're unforgiven. Apart from Christ, we have a debt. Apart from Christ, we're guilty. Apart from Christ, there is no relationship between us and God. But in Christ, God is now satisfied. But now I am also satisfied with God because of Christ. Christ in me, Christ with me, and Christ for me. 
How beautiful is that? So we'll close with this and we'll close in prayer. If we truly see who God is in Christ, what should go in the blank? Nothing. Let's pray. God, may we see your sufficiency. But God, in humility, we also have to see our deficiency and the depth of our sin. There is no one in this room good enough. There is no one in this room more righteous than any other person. We cannot look at someone else and say, at least I'm not like them. We look in the mirror and we have to reckon with the evil that can come out of our hearts or has come out of our hearts. But we do not stand looking in that mirror alone because there is Christ, the once for all perfect, sufficient, complete sacrifice to satisfy the anger of God, to pay the debt of the debtor, to justify the sinner, and to reconcile the lost back to their Father in heaven. Lord, I pray right now, if anybody needs to say yes and truly, truly, truly become a Christ follower, truly be saved by Jesus, I pray they're saying that right now in their heart, God. Nothing I'm saying, everything you're doing, and they're saying yes back to you. You've said yes to them when you put Jesus on the cross, the violent, bloody death of Jesus, sufficient to cover all sins acceptable to welcome people into the forever family of God. I pray people are saying yes right now in your name. God, there's people here and they realize they're stuck in sin or they've made peace with their sin. How can we make peace with something that put Jesus on the cross? We can't. So I'm praying, God, for conviction and repentance. But God, I pray against Satan's voice of condemnation because that is not here and that is not of you. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I say it again. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus, you be Lord here. Jesus, you be Savior here because Jesus, your sacrifice on the cross once for all was sufficient. And so Jesus, as best we know how, we want to pray this and then sing it. Jesus plus nothing still and forever and always equals everything to the glory of your name. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we pray. All God's people said, Amen. Amen.